You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. We're going to be finishing the book of Nahum today. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it up or turn it on uh, to Nahum chapter 3. And, um, and as, as we look at this, um, I, I know Nahum is not, not the most exciting book of the Bible for a lot of you. And, and it is a, it's a safe place to admit that. Um, this is a safe place to admit that there are parts of the Bible that are weird. But what we believe as, as a, an Orthodox church, we believe that Scripture is the authority in our life for faith and practice. What that means is that even the parts of the Bible that are hard to understand or difficult, uh, we don't shy away from those, including wrath-focused books like Nahum. Um, I remember when I first started taking an interest in theology and studying the Bible um, in like late high school, early college, I remember reading and, and reading some things and being like, that's in the Bible? Like, and I never heard that before. And, um, and, and I, don't want, I don't want people to come up in our church and, and have parts of the Bible and, and themes and, and principles in the Bible that they've never heard of before. And so as we look at the predominant theme of Nahum, which is wrath, uh, we're, we're focusing on a, a very important part of, of God's character and who he is, uh, meaning that God is just and he punishes sin. And that is a good attribute of God. And even though it's uncomfortable for us to turn our attention to at times, we focus on that because it's helpful to understand who the God is that we worship. And so um, a lot of hellfire and brimstone the past few weeks, but we're going to finish it up today. And, and I think even in light of, of God's grace to us as his people, we're going to see grace in even a book like Nahum. Now, Nahum is a prophecy primarily against the city of Nineveh. Uh, just to recap and review, uh, you probably know Nineveh as the place that Jonah visited when uh, swish, uh, swish, a fish swallowed him. Um, by the way, what's a, what's a fish with no eyes? Um, so, yeah, you're welcome. My son, my son taught me that one. That wasn't even in my notes. That was just because I stuttered a little bit. Um, but a fish swallows Jonah and he goes to Nineveh and he preaches repentance to them. And the, the Bible records that they repent in sackcloth and ashes, an outward show of repentance. And it says that repentance started at the king and, and all repent from the greatest of them to the least of them, um, indicating that their repentance was very sincere and it, was, it, was, uh, it permeated throughout the city. This is important because what we see is the legacy was eventually lost. Nahum is written about 150 years later, and they have, they have completely relented of all of their repentance in Jonah's day and, um, and are poised, ready to receive their just judgment from a holy God. And, and so Nahum 1, 2, and 3 are all uh, poetic Hebrew writings of the judgment and the wrath that's coming for the city of Nineveh. Now, um, I have six sermon points for you today, all right? Now, don't groan or get upset. Jeremy only had two last week, but he tricked y'all. He actually had five because uh, he had three sub-points. If you count the main points, he, like, or he had five sub-points, two main points. That's seven if you just do the math. And so, like, I'm just shooting straight with y'all. I got six, okay? So hang with me. I want to be honest, um, but what, what these six points are, are the, the succession and the progression in Nahum's final uh, chapter of prophecy of symbolism. And Nahum uses uh, lots of different uh, symbols to communicate what's going to happen to uh, Nineveh, the first of which is prostitution. So like we had a bunch of uh, guests at our church today. If you're a first time guest, welcome to our church. Uh, today's first sermon point is prostitution. All right. So like uh, 
when, we, when you preach through books of the Bible, you just got to deal with it, all right? And so I was reading the text, and I saw like we had missionaries from royal family camp coming, and I'm like, oh, great, prostitution right here. Okay, so we're going to look at the imagery of what Nahum means when he talks about prostitution. Uh, secondly, embarrassment. Thirdly, uh, fallen nations. And I'll, I'll go through all these. They'll be in the screen for you. Fourthly, uh, uh, the imagery of fruit. Fifthly, the imagery of locust, and sixth, and final, the imagery of sleep. Okay, so let's look at the first one together. The imagery of prostitution. This imagery is uh, symbolic and poetic to represent and, and emphatically show how Nineveh was unfaithful to what they had begun in their legacy of repentance in Jonah's day, that they um, crept into unfaithfulness. And Nahum's going to use the imagery of a prostitute to show how uh, Nineveh went out and formed lots of political and military alliances. Um, Nahum begins to conclude his book with this vivid imagery of a war. Uh, verses one through three, as I read those, I want you to even try to uh, visualize and imagine what, what picture Nahum is painting for you because he wants you to see the reality of what's coming in the wrath coming to Nineveh. Uh, verse one says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse, bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword, and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. And all four the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Now, verse 4 tells us the reason for the first three verses. Verse, verses one through three describe in reality and in literalism what is going to come for the Assyrian Empire. We know historically the Babylonian Empire came with chariots, with glittering spear, with sword, um, and stacked up bodies upon bodies, and uh, Nineveh literally became a bloody city. Now, verse four tells us the reason for that happening, and God's reason is uh, for that happening is all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. The, now, the, in this poetic prophecy, Nahum is reminding us of the reason for God's wrath coming to Nineveh. Assyria had expanded their empire through vassal states, through political alliances and military friendships, um, liberally like a promiscuous person. Um, and so Nahum compares uh, their city to a prostitute. Um, it's like if you ever watched the show Friends and you're like me and you got confused on who, what friend is with what other friend because they switch relationships all the time. Um, that's, that's what uh, Nineveh was like. They would have military alliances and political um, treaties and then they would betray those and then have more vassal states and betray those and have more vassal states and they would cry out, we were on a break, right? And, and then um, they would just continue that disaster throughout the earth. And what Nineveh was ultimately demonstrating was a lack of loyalty to good virtue. And I want you to look at what Nineveh's generals went out and told the people that they were forming these vassal state agreements with. Uh, Pastor Jeremy last week actually read a portion of this type of uh, language. I want to read a different passage. But in 2 Kings 18, the generals of Assyria go into Israel and they say, Do not listen to Hezekiah. That's the king at the time. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land that is like your own land. 
a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Doesn't that sound flattering? Nahum describes that kind of speech, that flattering speech, like the speech of a prostitute, um, one that's empty and vanity. And, and, and when they go and they speak these falsehoods, they are alluring God's people away from God's promises. It, it, it's reminiscent of what the serpent did in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Like, did God really promise you these things? Look at what I can promise you. And Assyria and Nineveh and their generals did the same thing as they went to form these alliances to expand their empire. And they said, look what we can promise you. And the same lies being told, led by Satan in your life today, things come into your life, circumstances and temptations in front of you that whisper to you, I can provide for you better than God can. I can give you things that God can't. And all the promises that God's word has given you, I can deliver in an even better way. God had promised milk and honey in the land of Canaan. They list way more than milk and honey. They list olive trees in your own cistern, in your own home. They're, they're listing all these things to entice them and draw them away from God's plan. You see, Israel fell prey to this. And by the way, Israel was not an innocent party in this. They willingly formed an alliance with the wicked empire of Assyria. And judgment will come for them too, and they would be taken captive by the next empire, the Babylonian empire. God says to his people in Ezekiel 16, he says the same thing that he says to Nineveh, by the way. He says, you played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Now this is harsh language from God, right? But harsh situations call for harsh language. He says, you played the whore with the Assyrians. And he gives the reason. He says, because you were not satisfied. God had promised, God had delivered, and God's people were not satisfied, and they went out looking for fulfillment in their flesh. He said, yes, you played the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. John Calvin famously said that our hearts are like factories of idols. And the Holy Spirit puts an idol to death and we create another one. And God puts it to death and we create another one. And we continually find ourselves in this death cycle of not being satisfied. We search everywhere for satisfaction. And if we are searching for satisfaction in anything other than the sufficiency of Jesus himself, we will be left wanting. We will be unsatisfied in chasing after anything instead of Jesus. And so we need to be faithful, not like the prostitute, but like a faithful bride, like the Bible compares us to finding our hope and rest and security only in the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. So that's the imagery of prostitution. Let's move on to the imagery of embarrassment or even humiliation. Um, God, in this passage through the prophet Nahum, uses nakedness as uh, an image of judgment against Nineveh. If you, I don't know if any of you guys do like public speaking for your job or whatever. I had a real bad speech impediment when I was a kid, and I always just like to say, now I talk for a living. So like, like figure that one out. I don't know. Um, I also say things like swish instead of fish. But, um, but there's, a, there's a weird fix that's like commonly told in like speech classes and stuff that if you're a public speaker, you just picture the audience in their underwear. 
I've never understood that. That's really strange to me. I don't know what pervert came up with that. Like, this will help you speak in public better. But for most of us, uh, nakedness is an embarrassing thing. It's a shameful thing. And uh, recently I was reading the Bible, and uh, we were starting a new kid's Bible with Judah and Teva. And we were reading in Genesis 1 and 2 how God creates, and we were talking about Adam and Eve and how they were naked and not ashamed. And Judah was like, so wait, they were in the garden, they were like gardening naked. And like, if you garden naked, I don't want to judge you too much, but you know, there's a little bit of shame that should be associated with that now, you know, post fall. And so I was explaining that in their innocence before the fall, that they were naked and not ashamed. But after the fall, their eyes were open and they became ashamed of their nakedness. And, and Judah and Teva were just amazed by this concept, right? They were like, that's weird that they were just like hanging out in a garden naked together. I'm like, yeah, we don't do that now. Um, (laughs) but so the, the embarrassment that we see in verses five through seven, God speaks of um, exposing Nineveh, um, their nakedness. And, and the, the point of this is imagery to bring shame to them because of their sin. Now, verse five says, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame, and I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Now, if I could just be honest with y'all, when I read those verses, I look at that and I say, doesn't this feel a little bit mean of God? That Like it's one thing to avenge the innocent people that were that were terrorized by Ninevites and the Assyrian Empire. But, but here it, it feels like God is just adding insult to injury, that he's embarrassing them. He's going to lift up their skirts over their face and throw filth at them. It, it almost sounds like those Frenchmen from Monty Python's Holy Grail that bang on their helmets and they say, your mother was a hamster, and they're like taunting, right? Um, some of y'all are too young for that movie and <laughs> to understand that reference. But, um, but it, it just seems like a little bit mean of God. And I think the reason that we read a passage like this and we, we look at this and almost feel like God is being mean is because in our culture, in our modern society, we have tended to lose the sense of shame that should be associated with sin. Sin, biblically, should always bring about shame. We live in a culture that's lost its shame of sin. I mean, June is Pride Month. We, have, we live in a culture where sin is no longer something to be ashamed of, but something to be celebrated and identified with. And it was the case in Nineveh, that they were celebrating their sinfulness. And so we too live in a world that embraces sin and identifies with sin, but we as Christians are called to die to our sin and not embrace sin, but instead embrace the cross, an instrument of death, where we put ourselves to death for the glory of Christ. And so sin in our lives should always produce shame, should always produce embarrassment. It's not mean to want sin to lead to shame and embarrassment. It's righteous. It's good. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature, no creation is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Greek word that the author of Hebrews uses is trachelizo, where we get our word trachea from. It means to expose the neck in a military sense. It, it has the word imagery of a soldier capturing someone he's fighting against and pinning his head back on the ground with his boot, exposing his neck so that he can be executed with a sword to the throat. That's not a very flowery picture in the Bible, is it? But the image is that we are fully exposed to God's wrath. We have no defense against God's 
wrath. Our only defense is grace itself. All humans are at the mercy of a sovereign God and all humans have offended a sovereign God and all of us stand in deserving nature of wrath, eternal. But instead, God has shown His grace. And this embarrassment is something that should be on us. The shame is something that should come to us when we sin. The third image is that of fallen nations or fallen cities. Uh, Nahum moves on to another image to compare the ancient city of Thebes to his modern city of Nineveh. And the irony that Nahum is employing is that Nineveh was the very army that conquered Thebes. He's saying that the this famous fortified strong city of Thebes in northern Africa that you overthrew, you're going to be overthrown in the same way. The same fate that you brought to people is going to be brought to you. And so Nahum points out that Thebes also had played the whore, if you will, and they had built strength through geographic and political alliances. He says in verse 8, Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. And so those are those political alliances. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast. And all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. And you will seek a refuge from the enemy. This tells us that there is no eternal nation only God's eternal nation. There is no eternal family, only God's eternal family. That hoping in our city, our state, our nation, our kings, all those things can have their rightful place, but placing our ultimate and eternal hope in those things is futile. It's temporary. So, so nationalism falls short of our citizenship that we're given to in eternity because we're called to be citizens of heaven first and foremost. And so we don't place our hope in the strength of military. We don't place our hope in the strength of a nation or the world. We place our hope in Jesus Christ and his sufficiency. And he tells Nineveh, you will fall just like other nations and other cities have fallen. The fourth imagery is that of fruit. Fruit is a frequent analogy in Scripture that shows a fullness of time as fruit grows and as it ripens. It's a, it's a fitting uh, picture in nature for us to see the development of something, either the development of God's wrath and judgment or the development of good works to God's glory. Even in the Garden of Eden, um, as Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, God had planted these trees and grown fruit, and he says, you can eat of all this fruit. They were naked, by the way. And he says, you can eat of all this fruit, and you can, um, you can enjoy it, but there is one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You are not to eat from that one. And even in the garden, God uses fruit as a symbol and a picture for us to see obedience and disobedience. Nahum uses the same imagery, specifically a fig tree, to show the disobedience of Nineveh and their fragility. Verse 12, he says, All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. This is imagery of uh, the city of Nineveh and the empire of Assyria being devoured. He says, Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. And the time had come for Nineveh and Assyria to be devoured, to be eaten up. Their troops are described as women. And if any of you feminists get mad at that, I'm sorry. Um, that's not the intention of God or Nahum, I don't think. 
Um, I think what Nahum is communicating is that their men lack courage. The men who were supposed to be the protectors um, are seemingly asleep, not paying attention, not ready for battle because they think that the disaster that's coming for them could never actually come for them. And when Nahum says your women will be your protectors or your troops, he's showing that the men were far incompetent for what they should have been doing. It it reminds me of the Titanic, how they didn't have enough lifeboats because it was unthinkable that the Titanic could sink, right? We don't need all those lifeboats. They're, They're completely unnecessary. They're just decorations because there's no way that this boat can sink. It's an unsinkable ship. We know what happened on the maiden voyage of the Titanic. Um, what they thought could never happen, happened to them. And the same thing was coming, the same kind of disaster was coming for Nineveh. The unthinkable was going to, in fact, happen, and it was going to be brought about by God's sovereignty. And Nahum says that just like the fig tree comes to its fullness and is devoured, that is the coming judgment for Nineveh. Jesus used the same analogy to foretell the coming destruction of Jerusalem in the first century. Um, And what's known as the Olivet Discourse, I'll read from Mark 13. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. You see the ripening of fruit is compared to coming judgment. But fruit imagery is also used to describe good work, holy work done to God's glory. Um, And so fruit is also a good thing in Scripture. Um, and, and until it's not, right? Fruit can have even the appearance of goodness on the outside while being rotten on the inside. It's like that old adage, um, what's worse than finding a worm in your apple? Finding half a one, right? And, um, and so some of us might have like that shiny, polished appearance on the outside, but when you bite into the works that we're doing, they're shallow and rotten at the core. And Just like we're naked and exposed to a true and holy God, God knows the intentions of our heart, the motives that we have. God knows our fruit and the works that we do, whether they are properly motivated or unrighteously motivated. And God's going to be the judge of our fruit. Your fruit is good or bad. It's good to God's glory and his grace as he saves you and saves you unto doing good works for his glory. Or it's bad bringing about God's judgment and wrath on you. Guess what? Either way, God receives glory. God receives glory in graciously saving sinners, and God also receives glory in justly dealing out punishment to the wicked. Either way, God is going to be glorified. And that's what the ripening of fruit tells us. The fifth image is that of locust. Um, talk about heebie-jeebies. Um, Nahum's going to bring in swarms of bugs. Locusts and grasshoppers are found throughout the Bible. They show judgment uh, for, that's coming for Nineveh. Locust, if you remember, was one of the, the plagues that God sent to Egypt during the Exodus. If you've seen the new Jurassic Park movie, there are some ultra-scary prehistoric locusts in that film. I won't give away any spoilers, but I was watching it in the movie theater last night, and I kept waiting. You know those like 3D movies where there's like air on your ankles that freak you out? I kept waiting for stuff like that to happen. I couldn't sleep last night. Um, imagery of locusts. I had this sermon in my mind and Jurassic Park on my brain. And Nahum actually mockingly encourages the Ninevites to take cover and compares them to bugs. He says in verse 14, draw water for the siege, strengthen your forts, go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. He's saying build up defenses for yourself. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. 
You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Now this is, again, poetic. And and so as we try to interpret this poetry, what's Nahum trying to say here? Well, he's comparing their multitude or their their number to bugs, just like a, a, a numerous swarm of grasshoppers. He's comparing their multiplication to that. The expansion of the Assyrian Empire was massive. But just like they can be destroyed and scattered, um, he's saying the same thing is going to come to you. Uh, one of my boys, Judah, is absolutely terrified of bugs. Um, we go camping and he just stares at the ground. There's like ants and stuff and he's worried they're getting in his food. And to, to like calm him down, it, we, we just repeatedly remind Judah how big he is. He's one of those kids who always forgets how big he is anyways. And we're like, bro, think about how much bigger you are than a bug. You don't need to be afraid of that, Right. And then he's, his answer is always like, yeah, but if there's a lot of them, right, then they can like, you know, overtake me. And I'm like, that's a good point because I saw the Jurassic Park movie. But, um, <clears throat> but what the Lord is doing here is he is reminding the Ninevites that he is so much bigger than, than they are. And the Assyrian Empire, as vast as it may be, is ultimately like bugs before a sovereign God. It does not matter how numerous they had become. It doesn't matter how large the empire had grown. They would ultimately be destroyed and they would scatter. Number six, final, final image is that of sleep. Anybody else not a morning person like me? Like I, I just hate mornings. Um, I, I'm more productive at night. I, I need coffee to function. Uh, matter of fact, to, to preach the 9 a.m. service, y'all are too lazy. No one, no one agreed with me. Y'all are too lazy to get to the 9 a.m. service. So I know y'all ain't morning people, okay? Um, but like to preach the 9 a.m. service, I have to get to Seanettes at 7. I need a two-hour runway to be able to preach a sermon. And I walk into Seanettes, and all the old guys at Seanettes are like telling me stories and talking, and I'm like, don't care about you. I only care about coffee right now. I'm just like cranky. I just, I just need coffee. Um, and, and so sleep in, in the Bible is very rarely a good thing. Um, it, it, it usually is a symbol of us a slumbering and not being vigilant or not being prepared for what um, is coming for us. And sleep is also a symbol of not being ready for God's coming judgment. Um, I'll, I'll never forget hearing uh, Matt Chandler speak at a conference. He was uh, discussing some things that were happening in the Middle East, and I talked about an interview with with a Middle East pastor. And um, this pastor was was a faithful pastor, was um, planting churches, and they were baptizing people in, in places where it was illegal to baptize people. Um, they were they were carrying out baptisms, seeing conversions in places where they could be arrested, beheaded, you know, so forth and so on for practicing their faith. And as, as this American evangelistic organization began to interview this pastor, they had to, they had to cover his face and they had to disguise his voice so that, um, so that he wouldn't be discovered. And, and, um, he was very polite, but they began to talk about, um, you know, the aid that, that he may need from the Western church or how the Western church or Christians in the West could, could help them. And, and he had this tone where he just really wasn't that concerned with getting help from Western Christians. And you could tell it was just kind of like, well, why? Why, why are you not concerned with that? And, and with, as much, with as much 
you know, politeness as he could, he said, when I, when I see the church in the West, in America and in Western Europe, when I see the church in the West, it, it feels as if they've just been lulled to sleep. Like, like they, they, they say that Jesus is alive. They say that a man rose from the dead, but then they become more concerned with football on the Lord's Day. Or, or they say someone rose from the dead, but then they're, they're overcome by their hobbies and interests and their families and things rather than the, the radical reality that a man rose from the dead. And, and that, that weighed on me so hard because he, he described us as just like sleepwalking and going through the motions. And, and that's a dangerous place to be. If Jesus has risen from the dead, it needs to shape everything about my life. It needs to change everything. It needs to be my highest priority and place everything else in perspective. And so here, uh, the imagery of sleep is used as well. Um, to Nineveh, in verse 18, it says, Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. The image is like they're just out like camping and no one's there to like wake them up and bring them to the battle lines. And he says, there is no ease in your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. That is, it's the imagery that people are going to celebrate when you die. And the, and the whole prophecy, the whole book ends with, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. What a, what a powerful and striking ending to this prophecy, right? That the, the claim to the Assyrian Empire, that everyone in the world has experienced your unceasing evil. In my study this week, I read of one historian that estimated that at the height of the Assyrian Empire, there was not a nation on the planet that had not experienced the barbarity of these people in one way or another. They displayed rows of impaled prisoners. They locked captives up with lip rings. They skinned people alive. They were a brutal and godless people. And when justice would come for them, and, and it did, the world would clap their hands. And Nahum, while he was prophesying of the soon coming destruction of Nineveh in Assyria, something very important was happening in Judah. Namely, the rise of King Josiah, who was eight years old at the time. Now, I've got a, a seven and a nine-year-old. One of them's afraid of bugs. Like, I, I can't imagine either of them being king of anything. Like, they can't be king over their own breakfast, like, let alone rule a nation. Okay? It's like, it ain't happening. But, but Josiah, through a series of sovereign events, becomes king of Judah when he's eight years old. Hezekiah was a righteous king. I mentioned him earlier. Remember when the generals came, they said, hey, don't listen to Hezekiah. Um, Hezekiah's son was a guy named Manasseh, who the Bible tells us was a very wicked king. And then Manasseh's son, Ammon, took over for him, was also a wicked king, but he was assassinated after only two years on the throne. And since he was assassinated, it left the throne to his son, which was a guy named Josiah, a boy named Josiah who was eight years old and the decision came to young child king Josiah, whose legacy am I going to follow? You see, for Josiah, his righteous legacy was not lost. He wouldn't follow after his father Ammon. He wouldn't follow after uh, Manasseh, his grandfather. Instead, he would follow after the ways of his great-grandfather, Hezekiah. Matter of fact, the, the Bible tells us clearly that he followed in the righteous path of God. It says in 2 Kings 22, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Abeah of Boskath, 
And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the way of David, his father. You see, Ammon and Manasseh are not named as his father, but rather David is named as his father. He follows in that legacy and it says he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. You see, at the time where uh, the world around him was desperately wicked, had lost its moral compass and a sense of morality, Josiah chose to find his legacy in a righteous path. And my call to you, Christians today, is to look at the legacy that's been handed to us from, from people who've been faithful for generation after generation, century after century, and let's follow in the path that's proven to be faithful and glorifying to God. Let's follow in that path. Let's not lose our legacy of, of standing up even when something may be unpopular, standing up for what's right and what's glorifying to God. After all, Jesus died to give us this legacy, died to deliver this to us, went to the cross and rose from the dead so that we could live upright in a downstream world. And we look at a book like Nahum, and, and honestly, I, I look at it and I say, man, this book just seems so hateful. God seems so mean in this book. There's so much death and so much promise of, of destruction. And when I look at, at, at you know, nakedness being exposed and shame and, and, and just death coming and piles of bodies, I, I'm tempted to say, why would I want to worship a God like that? What on earth would make me want to worship a God who would promise all that destruction to someone? Well, here's what would make me worship that God. is because he took all that anger and all that wrath Instead of putting it square on me, he put it square on Jesus instead. And the wrath that was stored up for sinners like you was instead poured out on the only one who never deserved it, Jesus Christ. You see, I've got a seventh image for you. That's a Jeremy Berry trick subpoint. The seventh image is the image of a cup. What do we do with a book completely about God's wrath? We thank Jesus for drinking it all in for us. Let's go from Nahum to Gethsemane where Jesus is in the garden and he's praying to the Father and he says, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. What's he talking about? Well, a cup in the Old Testament always refers to God's wrath. Being poured out is the language that the prophets use to describe God's wrath. And, and it's always a cup. God's wrath is stored up in a cup and it's poured out on a nation. It's stored up in a cup and it's poured out on a nation. And Jesus here in the garden is sweating blood under the stress and anxiety of the task that lay before him. And he says, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will be done. And he drinks in the cup all of the wrath of Nahum, all of the wrath of Exodus, all of the wrath of unfaithfulness, all the prophets throughout the Old Testament, all the anger of God is drank in by the Son of God. You see, this cup of wrath in Gethsemane is contrasted with a cup of grace at the Lord's table where he uh, gathers his disciples and he says, this is the cup of the New Testament, the cup of the New Covenant, which is poured out for many. So Jesus is illustrating with a cup this great exchange that takes place. All the wrath of God that you deserve as a sinner who has offended a holy God, who deserves to be shamed, who deserves to be punished forever, that cup stored up with wrath for you is drank in by your Savior Jesus, and what is extended to you is instead a cup of grace, not one of wrath. What's extended to you is a cup of his blood that was used to pay for your sins rather than you trying to muster up payment for yourself. The only perfect life to ever live was given 
so that you could have a seat at his table. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.